Good morning. <clears throat> Thank you, Acacia and uh, Susie. Uh, really excited to hear stories of what God is doing here at our church as we uh, head into this uh, Easter season. We're just entering uh, Lent and uh, moving towards uh, Easter. And uh, this year, we, we set up our sermon series so that we could actually move through the life of Jesus in sync with the church calendar. So uh, it's kind of fun to be stepping into this, I guess, fun and Lent don't go together really well. But, but it's kind of interesting this year to take time as we're uh, following Jesus' journey towards the cross, to be able to have a time of reflection, repentance, uh, fasting, prayer, a time to prepare our hearts. And so I think it's, uh, it's fitting to be doing that uh, together and fitting to kind of be preparing ourselves and following Jesus' uh, uh, story of his uh, passion all the way through to Easter. And I uh, can't wait to celebrate. Uh, hard to believe, just uh, 40 days away here, it will be or so, and we'll be uh, celebrating Easter together, baptisms, having a huge party. But right now, we are focusing on the cross. Mark is taking us both geographically and thematically on this journey towards the cross. I've had this map up the last couple weeks here with that little red line. Jesus has been moving from the furthest parts of, uh, of Israel, from the furthest, most far-flung territories, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And so we know he's on a head-on collision with the religious authorities, with the Romans, um, and his journey, Mark is taking on, is moving towards uh, the cross. But we also know thematically, Jesus' teaching has increasingly been about the cross. And so our text this morning is Jesus' third and final prediction of his upcoming death and resurrection. So if this text feels a little bit like Deja vu, that's because we've heard this teaching twice already, along with the disciples' utter understanding to other failure to understand it. So if you flip back to Mark 8, 31, and you're following along, you'll see these words, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's, that was Jesus' first uh, prediction of his death. And of course, you remember Sebastian was preaching on this. You know, Peter rebukes Jesus and this isn't going to happen to you. And Jesus actually gives him one of his most fierce rebukes in all of the Gospels. Get behind me, Satan. And so Jesus is beginning to talk about this subject of the cross. And then if you flip over a chapter to Mark 9, 31, we see once again Jesus predicting his death. So Mark 9, 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Once again, Jesus is heading towards the cross. And this time, the disciples are too afraid to ask him what he means, and they're kind of preoccupied because they're arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And as we move towards chapter 10, we're going to see Jesus' most detailed prediction, and we're going to get into it. We'll unpack it here in just a minute. But the point Mark is driving home in the second half of his gospel is that you can't have the kingdom without the cross. You can't have the kingdom without the cross. The first century was awash in messianic expectation. Jesus' contemporaries were longing for the kingdom of God. But to the disciples' consternation, Jesus keeps talking about the cross. And today, I think people are still intrigued by the kingdom of God, but the cross continues to be a stumbling block 
for many. People often assume that the cross is a hangover from a more primitive age, right? Filled with angry gods who needed blood to be appeased. Uh, <clears throat> like a King Agamemnon in Homer's epic classic, The Iliad, who sacrifices his daughter so that he can have favorable winds to sail to Troy. Many people have that kind of an image of the gods in their minds. And we're suspicious, I think, of angry gods um, looking for blood sacrifices, probably because we've already seen enough powerful people sacrifice ordinary people to achieve their own selfish ambition. So it's tempting for us to dismiss the cross today as a relic of a bygone era filled with angry gods, a symbol perhaps of exploitation and abuse as it is uh, for so many in our culture. After all, if God is so loving, why can't he just forgive us and avoid the ugliness of the cross? Here in chapter 10, Jesus explains why the cross is so central to his kingdom project. So we're going to unpack that answer. And the big question that I want us to be wrestling this with this morning is, why can't we have the kingdom without the cross, right? Everybody wants the kingdom, right? God to bring perfect peace and shalom, to bring heaven down to earth. No more suffering, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, none of the brokenness that we wrestle with and struggle in our world. Why can't we have the kingdom without the cross. Well, the disciples, as usual, provide the perfect foil for this question, right? They're, they're blundering and their kind of misunderstandings give us an opportunity for Jesus to explain why he has to come and die. So I want to look at really three different observations from the disciples that help Jesus answer this question for us this morning. First, we're going to notice the disciples' amazement. Um, second, we're going to see the disciples' misunderstanding, and finally, the disciples' ransom there in verse 45. And my aim for this morning's sermon is that we would see how the cross radically reorganizes our understanding of life in God's kingdom, what it looks like to be a part of his kingdom. So let's pray as we dive into God's word this morning that he would meet us as we <clears throat> spend some time in his word together. Father, we are surrounded by a culture that wants the kingdom but doesn't want the king. We want all of the blessings of God's kingdom without, without having to bend the knee, without having to follow him, without having any inconveniences in our lives, much less suffering. We're all about pursuing greatness and influence and doing whatever it takes to follow our dreams. And this is the air we breathe. This is the culture we're living in. We struggle, God, with this call to discipleship, the call to take up our cross and follow Jesus. So would you show us this morning the way of the cross and would it radically reshape our lives together? Come by your Holy Spirit, God, open up your word to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So all throughout Mark's gospel, we have been treated to some wonderful responses by the disciples to Jesus' ministry, their continually bumbling and incompetence has been one of the things I love most about the Gospels, right? They're, they're constantly missing what Jesus is trying to do, which for somebody like me is actually very helpful. I'm, I'm glad there are other people that don't always get it, right? That don't always understand what God is doing, that struggle to comprehend what God is doing in our lives. And so we're going to see the disciples struggling to understand what Jesus is doing. And I want to start with their amazement in verse 32. Notice if you're following along here, 
uh, how this text opens. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Verse 32 opens with a cinematic snapshot of Jesus going up to Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. And Mark tells us, right, there are two responses, amazement and fear. What's going on, right? Why are they so amazed that Jesus is walking ahead of his disciples? After all, that's what rabbis do, right? They, They lead and the disciples follow. Nothing surprising there, right, in the ancient Uh, world, it was considered a great honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi, to be following behind your rabbi, right? This This seems like nothing to write home about. So why are the disciples so amazed and why is the rest of those following so afraid? They have watched Jesus conceal his identity, avoid the public spotlight, and swear the people he heals to secrecy over and over again, right? Jesus has been ministering from the margins. He's been in Galilee. He's been in the Decapolis. He's been in all the areas but the center of Jerusalem, right, where all the action is. And now he is heading directly, resolutely to Jerusalem for one of its greatest feasts. So whatever he says and whatever he does will be marked by the religious leaders and the Roman authorities And Jesus has already had some run-ins, memorable run-ins with the religious leaders, and it hasn't particularly gone well. They're already conspiring all the way back in chapter 3 about how to destroy him. And Jesus has managed to to stay out of their way thus far by being out on the periphery, out on the margins. He's been able to stay off the radar of the Romans, but everyone, but at this point, right, he is turning his face towards Jerusalem, and the disciples are amazed. They think this is their moment. Whatever is happening in Jesus' ministry, it is all coming to a climax. Jesus is no longer ministering on the margins. He is marching straight to the epicenter of Jerusalem, and whatever happens, it's going to be intense, right? This is going to be a showdown of all showdowns, and the disciples are astonished. They're amazed. They're like, this is our moment, right? They're eagerly anticipating Jesus setting up his kingdom right in the heart of Jerusalem, right? Marching into Jerusalem, cleaning house with the corrupt religious establishment and overthrowing the Romans, right? Who are cruelly oppressing them. And so this amazement is that the moment has come. Jesus is marching into Jerusalem. He's going to set everything right. And the disciples are like, we're going to be there to watch this action unfold along with Jesus. It's interesting, the broader crowd following Jesus has a different reaction, perhaps a more accurate read on the situation, right? Mark tells us they were afraid, right? They've seen how this is going down. They know the religious establishment is out to kill Jesus. They know the Romans do what the Romans do, right? If anyone threatens the Pax Romana, the wonderful Roman peace. The Romans have a solution to that. They brutally kill you, right? And that's how you preserve the peace. As long as you kill anyone who gets in your way, disturbs the peace, you have peace. And that was how they thought about it. So the crowd is a little terrified about how this is going to go for Jesus. He doesn't have any friends in the religious establishment, right? He certainly isn't a friend to the Romans. And so they see this going very differently for Jesus. And so the stage is set here. And I, 
I find it strangely comforting that the disciples don't always get it. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm always trying to figure out what, Jesus, what are you up to in this situation? What is going on? Right? I find myself amazed at many points. I, I'm embarrassed to note the occasions where I thought, this is my moment of glory, right? I finally arrived. This is the moment where, you know, revival is going to break forth only to find myself in very different places throughout the course of my life. I don't know if you can relate, uh, but the disciples find themselves here thinking they've arrived. This is their moment in the spotlight, and they're, they're going to be in for some, some surprises, not to spoil the, the ending here. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but the broader crowd, they're afraid, right? And I think some of us, too, can resonate and relate to that, right? They're, they see suffering and persecution in Jesus' future and possibly theirs. They're actually more in touch with reality, but their fear indicates that they don't share Jesus' confidence in God's good, God's good purpose, even in the midst of suffering and persecution, that God will be with them, that God will be present in and through it. I love what uh, Richard Hayes says about the disciples, a uh, commentator. He says, if our sensibilities are formed by this narrative, we will learn not to take ourselves too seriously. We will be very self-critical and receptive to the unexpected manifestations of God's love and power. I just always find that to be a very helpful thing, right? <laughs> not to take ourselves too seriously. And if we learn anything from the disciples, right, it's to not take themselves too seriously. Notice while the disciples are amazed and the crowds are afraid, notice Jesus' attitude here. Jesus is a striking contrast to his 12 disciples and the crowds around them. Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And he is laser-focused on his mission. Notice what he says in verse 23 down through 34. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Mark has told us already that the Jewish establishment is out to get him. Jesus is clearly aware of this reality. And everyone in first century Palestine knew what the Romans did to those disturbing their peace. Mocking, spitting, flogging, crucifixion, Um, was the norm. There was nothing surprising about that. That's what the Romans did to uh, establish the kind of fear that preserved the Roman peace. So Jesus is walking into this trap, eyes wide open, right? No surprises here. It is all part of the plan laid out from all eternity. So Jesus moves resolutely towards Jerusalem, right? We have to marvel, just pause here to just marvel at Jesus' courage and resolution, knowing what he's facing, right? Just to pause. The disciples are amazed because they think this is their moment, but we need to pause and be amazed at Jesus going to the cross to this kind of brutal punishment, and yet he is resolute, steadfast, marching to Jerusalem, leading his disciples uh, on the way that he knows, the path that has been marked out for him. Each time after teaching about the cross with great clarity, right, Jesus has to clear up many misconceptions from his disciples. And this is true once again. We know what at least two of the disciples are thinking. 
because Mark tells us in verse 35 through 37. So let's eavesdrop here on this conversation that James and John, the, the sons of thunder, two of the great characters of Jesus' band of disciples, these are not shy. Guys, these are, guys, they're a little trigger happy, right? They're, they're not afraid of conflict. They're ready to call down fire from heaven. Uh, these are the kind, I don't know if you relate to these guys, but they're just direct, open-hearted. They just shoot first, ask questions later. They just say whatever's on their minds. And, and we love them right for that because they kind of say what everybody else is thinking. And so James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Jesus' favorite nickname, the, the sons of thunder, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, that's always a great strategy, right? If you're asking something that's a little bit questionable, you can always ask a question before the question and kind of get a little like a blank, blank check response here. Would you do anything for us? And Jesus said to them, well, let's, let's see here. Uh, what, what do you want me to do for you? Let, let me find that out first. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your glory. So there's a presumptuous request, right? Jesus has just described his death in harrowing detail. Uh, what are James and John thinking about here? What, what's on their minds, right? Perhaps they thought Jesus was speaking in parables, all this stuff about death and resurrection. You know, it's all an elaborate metaphor, right, for, for life in the kingdom. Like, it's going to be really hard. We're going to Jerusalem, but we're going to take over, and we're going to set up the kingdom. And they're like, all right, so this is the time for us to start making arrangements and being the forward-looking entrepreneurial types. They think maybe this is the time if we put in a word first, we can get the top two seats in Christ's kingdom when he establishes it here in just a short day's walk once we get up to uh, Jerusalem. Like what other purpose could he have going there to Jerusalem other than to establish his kingdom and kick butt? I mean, what else would you want to do? I mean, James and John clearly don't see any other alternatives. She tells us a lot about their, their wonderful personality. Uh, but, when, but, uh, but I love their strategy. I already mentioned it here. They, uh, they ask a question before the question. <laughs> I don't know if you have kids, but this is one of the classic things kids love to do. When they know you're not going to let them eat chocolate cake for breakfast, they might come and ask you, Dad, could you do something for me? And you're like, uh, well, what exactly is it that you want me to do for you? And so it's strategic, right, to ask kind of a pre-question just to kind of test the waters here. And that's exactly what they do. Uh, and then once Jesus uh, asked them to actually explain themselves like any good parent would do to some precocious children, um, they finally come to the point, right? They want the top spots in the kingdom. They would like to be the vice president and secretary of state. You know, you pick the top two positions. We don't really care which one you give us. I mean, we'll, we'll humbly allow you to decide who gets to sit on your right, the, the seat of greatest authority, and who gets to sit on the left. You know, Jesus, you can decide that. But, you know, as long as you give us the top two spots, we're going to be okay with that. And amazingly, <laughs> Jesus is so amazing in his interaction, his patience with these men. Amazingly, Jesus doesn't rebuke them but tells them they have no idea what they're asking for. Ironically, when Jesus does come into his kingdom, there will be two people on his right and his left hand, but they will be two criminals nailed to a Roman cross, which is a sobering thing to think about. But Jesus doesn't simply tell them, you guys have no idea what you're after here. You don't want you don't want what I'm, what I'm heading into. But Jesus also has a very 
pointed question for them, right? They have a question for him. He has a equally direct, equally pointed question for them that we all need to wrestle with, right? Jesus asks them, are you willing, and we'll read this text here together, to drink the cup that I am going to drink? So we pick things up here, and this is verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. Of course, we got this. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But the sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. He asked them if they can drink the cup he is going to be drinking and be baptized with the baptism he's going to be baptizing. Interestingly, this language of a cup in the Old Testament could represent blessing, right? Most famously in Psalm 23, you know, my cup runs over, right, with the blessing of God. But the cup also represents much more frequently in the Old Testament, the cup of judgment. Right? If you read pretty much anywhere in the prophets, right, to drink the cup of God's wrath is a cup of judgment, not something you want to mess with. Same with baptism, right? Baptism can be a positive image for washing or purification, but it can also be a symbol of the primordial chaos being buried beneath the waters of, of the uh, of world, you know, the, the sea and the waters are images of chaos in Scripture. And so to be baptized is to go down into death, to go down under water. The images, of course, uh, could be taken positively, could be taken negatively, but the disciples seem to take it positively. And that's what, like, sure, we got this, we can do this. They see themselves enjoying some cocktails in Jesus' new kingdom. And, you know, they're familiar with Jesus' baptism, right? No harm there. You know, he got baptized and Everything went great, started his whole ministry. So I think they're seeing themselves, hey, you know, by the day this day is out, you know, we should be, we should be drinking the cup together. We're going to be celebrating the arrival of God's kingdom. Jesus knows that his words are only going to make sense after his death and resurrection, so he loads them with significance. He's essentially saying, if you want true greatness in the kingdom, nothing wrong with that, right? You want, you want spots in the kingdom, are you willing to? to suffer, right? Are you willing to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And this cup we know for Jesus, in hindsight, represents suffering, persecution, right? This baptism that he's going to undergo is going to be uh, the worst sort of punishment, persecution, affliction, suffering we can imagine. And Jesus can already see through where this is going and can already uh, play this out in his mind. Jesus knows that James is going to be one of uh, the church's first martyrs, right, in Acts 12, too. He knows that John is going to face suffering and persecution throughout his life. In Revelation 1.9, he's going to call himself a, a brother in their persecution and suffering, right? These are two men right now that are ready for the kingdom of God, but they're not quite ready for the suffering and the persecution that is coming, but they will be. They will be after uh, the momentous events that are awaiting them. So how about you this morning? Are you striving <clears throat> for greatness? Are you ambitious? Uh, uh, then you have to ask yourself, are you willing to drink the cup that Jesus offers? Are you willing to count the cost? Are you willing to take up your cross and follow him? Nothing wrong with pursuing greatness in the kingdom of God, but along with greatness comes a burden, a weight, persecution, suffering. Right? There's a cost that needs 
to be counted. And Jesus' disciples, while they're not ready for it right now, right where they're at, Jesus is going to prepare them. Even these conversations are preparing them for the incredible ministry that they're going to have ahead of them. Now, when the rest of the 10 find out in verse 41, you can imagine the reaction. <laughs> James and John, well, you guys are jockeying for the chief seat in the kingdom of God, and like you leave Peter out of the whole conversation. I realize you guys are kind of in Jesus. You're tight with Jesus. You're in the inner circle. But like this, like this is ridiculous. Uh, notice what they say. And when the 10 heard about it, they became indignant at James and John, right? They can't believe the presumption of these two brothers. They might have been, you know, Jesus' inner circle, but come on, like, really? Like, at a moment like this, after Jesus just talked about his death, you can imagine the scene here. And I have to say, I very much relate to the disciples here being indignant at these brothers trying to steal all the glory. I'm not someone who, you know, want, would make that power play for the best seats in the house, but but it's not because I don't want the glory. I just want someone to like give it to me, like hand it to me, like recognize the glory inherent in me. You know, I, I want to go about it in a more indirect, you know, sort of way. But but that glory hunger is still there. And I think this is true for all of the disciples, right? They're indignant at James and John because they want those important seats in the house as well. The same desires are warring in their hearts. They're just not quite as direct or quite as presumptuous as James. And John, they don't have quite the same directness to them. But Jesus takes this teachable moment to patiently explain once again what true greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. And, and there's, there's scarcely some more beautiful text in Scripture laying out the vision for what, what Jesus' kingdom is supposed to look like. Let's see what Jesus says here in verse 42. And Jesus called to, him, <clears throat> called to them, called them to him and said to them, you know what those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus calls their attention to what would have been the familiar power grabs, people throwing their weight around, people ambitiously climbing the ladder in Roman culture, and says that's not the way it works in his kingdom. You've seen that out there. You've seen the way people claw their way to the top and just leave, you know, a bunch of bodies behind them in the process. Rather, in the kingdom, the great are known as servants. And the first, paradoxically, is a slave. A slave being the very lowest position in the Greco-Roman culture. Like so many other things, Jesus entirely flips the leadership paradigm for his kingdom. The greatest are expected to use their gifts, talents, and abilities and resources to serve those under their care. The least in God's kingdom are the entitled ones, the, the consumer Christians waiting for others to serve them and meet all of their needs. And, and no passage, I think, of Scripture has challenged me more as a parent or a, or a pastor. Right? Parenting requires a remarkable amount of service, especially when your kids are young. You have to do everything for them. You have to feed them, change them, burp them like they can't do anything. They can't even poop on their own. I was like, okay, they can, but you have to clean it up, right? So, I mean, it's just like if some of you are in that phase right now, bless you, all of you who are still there, I'm very happy to have kids in middle school now. Uh, but it's difficult, right? You are, you are giving of yourself, and that person 
That little person can't even speak to thank you for wiping their butt. That little person can't even thank you for cleaning up their food and all the spit up you get on your nice new shirts that you're wearing and, and all of the crazy things that happen, right? You will have to continually learn to die to yourself. And as your kids grow older, you're going to learn to die to yourself in new ways that you didn't even know you had to die, right? New challenges will emerge in that process of caring for little human beings and helping them grow into healthy, mature, well-rounded human beings. Uh, nothing has pulled me out of myself and my own little world like the rigors of parenting. When I've just wanted to live in my own wonderful little, little space where everything is all neat and tidy and wonderfully organized. <laughs> Nothing's pulled me out of that self-centered orbit more than the call of parenting. And as I've been a pastor, I'm learning that leadership in the church, it's not about pursuing my own greatness, but dying to myself in public. <laughs> not just at a family level, but now I get to take uh, the gifts God has given me to help others grow and flourish. I get to use my gifts, talents, and abilities to serve the body and help them grow. There, there are calls to die to self as I enter into the pain and suffering and struggles and sins and difficulties of other people around me. The call to leadership is a call to die at a very public level, which is quite a, quite a as you can imagine, a rather challenging, daunting thing, especially if you don't like to be called out in that sort of way. And I know this is the heart of our elders here at our church, guys like Mike and John and Ken. Um, I think only Mike is here today, so I can freely embarrass Ken and John here <laughs> in the process here. But we have elders that are servant leaders. I, I don't know if any of you see Ken out here at 7 a.m. shoveling snow, walks up the street from his house, chipping away at ice, making sure the church is prepared Sunday mornings. Uh, John wading into conversations that he doesn't want to wade into because he loves the people in his life and you have hard conversations and wade into the difficulties there. Mike is always around picking up all kinds of projects and, and agendas and tasks that other people don't want to do. We have some remarkable servant leaders in this church. Uh, Josh Rickard, who's led worship here for, I don't know, seven plus years, is back running the soundboard right now because there is a need uh, for that opportunity to get things figured out. Um, we have a lot of servant leaders here in our church, and that culture has impacted who we are and what we're like. I've been served by that culture personally, and I hope you get an opportunity to experience some of that servant leadership in your life. It's incredible, right, when someone else is willing to lay down their life for you, to be inconvenienced for you, to give up their time or their, their talents or their abilities to minister to the challenges that you have in your life. That is so meaningful and so powerful. But of course, the pinnacle, the apex, the highest expression of servant leadership doesn't come until verse 45. And we could spend a whole sermon here, I'm tempted to, as time is running short already. Uh, but we read these words here, for even the Son of Man came, Jesus' favorite self-designation of himself, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is working here from the lesser to the greater in his teaching, right? He, he starts with a servant, then moves to the slave, and then finally to his own mission. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The one person who is actually entitled to be served, the one who created the world and established it, the king of the universe, 
is going to give his life as a ransom for many. It's one thing to be a servant. It's another thing to be a slave and another thing entirely to give up your life. And Jesus does all of them. Jesus came to serve. We see that in his interactions with so many hurting and needy people in his ministry. Jesus is constantly being diverted aside from the important work that he's doing to care for broken people around him. Jesus came to be a slave. We'll see him later picking up a towel and washing his disciples' feet, taking the lowest role, uh, the role of the lowest slave, the person at the very bottom of the totem pole. But in Jesus, it's Jesus' life-giving ransom more than anything else that explains the meaning of Jesus' death. And we don't use the word ransom today except in connection to kidnappings, right? Where, where people will hold you for a ransom. But in the Greco-Roman world of Jesus' time, a ransom was a payment given to purchase the freedom of a slave or a prisoner of war. This would be a costly payment that matched the value of the slave or prisoner, right? And the cost of a human life is great. Jesus tells his disciples that his death on the cross will be the ransom payment for many, not just for the disciples, not just for the Jews, but for people from every tribe and language and people and nation and tongue who will follow Jesus. It will be the ultimate price because of the sin debt we owe for the mess we've made of our lives, relationships, the world, right? We just have to look at the, the news to see uh, the messiness of life in the world we live in today. We just have to look at the shootings at MSU, look at the tragedy around us. We know the wages of sin is death, and it will be Jesus who takes on that ultimate expression of servant leadership, giving up his life. The greatest person to ever live uh, made the greatest sacrifice for the greatest amount of people. That, that's what we see in shapes servant leadership. Tim Keller brings this home this way, and I hope this helps you just put some handles on this incredible reality. He says, all real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. I love that. Uh, Think about that. That is not the narrative we hear in our culture today, that the heart of love is substitutionary sacrifice, right? And and Keller offers an illustration from one of my favorite series uh, from the wonderful Harry Potter books here, a favorite at the Bartlett household. Uh, And he mentions, and I thought this was great as I was looking for illustrations, uh, this theme of substitutionary sacrifice at the heart of so much great literature that I was like, man, where do I go? But when I read this, I was like, oh, this would be a great place to go here. Um, In the first book, um, The Sorcerer's Stone, at the end of it, if you've read it before, you know the big reveal at the end, uh, why Harry Potter has not been able to be killed by Voldemort, the arch-villain, is this. We get this beautiful explanation, and I want to read it to you here and then give you Keller's commentary on it to land the plane this morning. Uh, But he says, Your mother died to save you. If there is one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it's love. He didn't realize that that love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign to have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. If you haven't read the books, um, Lily, Harry's mom, gives her life, dies defending Harry Potter, right? Her and her husband both try to defend him. And all of that love that's poured into Harry Potter, right, protects him against the evil arch villain. And uh, Tim Keller says this about this beautiful uh, story here. Why is Dumbledore's statement so moving? Because we know from experience, from the mundane to the dramatic, that sacrifice 
is at the heart of real love. And we know that anyone who has ever done anything that made a difference for us, a parent, a teacher, a mentor, a friend, a spouse, sacrificed in some way, stepped in and accepted some hardship so that we could not get hit with it ourselves. Therefore, it makes sense that a God who is more loving than you and I, a God who comes into the world to deal with the ultimate evil, the ultimate sin, would have to make a substitutionary sacrifice. Even flawed human beings know that you can't just overlook evil. It can't be dealt with or removed or healed by saying, forget about it. It must be paid for, and dealing with it is costly. How much should we expect, how much more should we expect that God could not just shrug off evil, the debt had to be paid, but he was so incredibly loving that he was willing to die in order to do it himself. That is a beautiful picture, a beautiful reality of the God we serve, who gave up his life for us on the cross. And that's the culture, I hope, that we are forming here at Redemption City, a culture shaped after our Savior, Jesus, who gave his life for us so that we get to give our lives, as Paul says, for each other. So let's pray this morning that God would be doing that work in our hearts and our lives this morning. Father, we thank you for uh, this beautiful message, uh, the message of the cross, the message of uh, leadership and greatness in your kingdom comes with great sacrifice and great service. And so I pray this morning as we uh, reflect in our own lives the wonderful opportunities, the spaces that you have for us to serve, God, that you would stir up in our hearts, uh, God, a beautiful love, a sacrificial love that we would be able to share with each other, all flowing out of the love that we have experienced directly from Jesus. So we pray you'd come minister to each person this morning as we gather around the table for all of the needs that they're going to have. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.